I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Anyone keeping an eye on the overarching trends in the global wholesale and specialty insurance and reinsurance markets of the last few years cannot have failed to notice the explosive growth of the hybrid insurance carrier. Burgeoning billions of dollars of premium are being directed in new and interesting ways through a cohort of businesses that 10 years ago didn't really exist. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that this has been a repeated topic of conversation with guests on the show. I think today's guests will be able to put this topic into context better than almost anyone else. That's because Bill Jewett, CEO of Obsidian Insurance Holdings, boasts a more than 40-year career right in the heart of the US and Bermuda reinsurance community. This means Bill is very much one of us and can speak our language. He can also articulate what is happening on the ground, because he's personally one of the architects of the hybrid carrier revolution, and what looks very much to be a secular change in the distribution of commercial insurance. I had known Bill since his decade at Endurance, and was really glad to catch up with him again after such a long time. I'm sure many of you out there will similarly be reacquainting yourself with an old friend from the business. Bill's got a great story to tell, and this podcast will dispel any lingering myths or doubts you have about the major changes afoot in how many MGAs will source their capital in the future. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting. Helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models. Designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market. And developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Bill, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Very good to be here. Obsidian, tell us all about it. What gave you the idea to found this business? It was about six years ago, right around the time that Raquel had purchased State National and uh, Clibloo had been formed, right when Clibloo was formed, and Spinnaker was getting some lift in the marketplace. And thinking what I wanted to do next and came up with the idea of what I termed at the time a next generation fronting carrier, which we based on an underwriting foundation, searching for business, writing business that we thought was profitable and sustainable and really designed as a purpose program carrier with full underwriting actuarial and service capabilities versus at the time a credit pass-through company where you were actually taking minimal or no risk and passing all the risk off to the reinsurance community. The underlying premise to that was that business that we could analyze and develop a line of sight on the profitability and have a point of view, one that it would be more sustainable if indeed it was profitable. So we kind of hung in the parameters of expected profitability from that standpoint. And we also had the foundational thought that it would resonate well within the reinsurance community as far as us having underwriting capabilities, vetting business, doing our own analysis given the pedigree at the time of some of the people that I anticipated joining us, you know, coming from the reinsurance community. And all that at the time would be reinforced by economic alignment. Us, unlike some of the others that were previously mentioned, sharing in the risk and at the time up to a 10% net retention on our balance sheet, which was a differentiator. 
again, thinking that reinsurers would place value on economic alignment. So at that point in time, we developed a business plan, reached out to AMBEST and started that process, retained a mid-market investment bank at the time called Center O'Neill, which is now part of Piper Sandler, put together a formal business plan and began that process. Over a two-year period, we consummated the process with obtaining the A minus A invest rating, A minus seven. Our capital provider is a private equity firm called Genstar Capital, which has extensive experience in the space. Bought a shell company in December of 19, admitted shell company. Got our final tranche of capital in April, two and a half years ago. So we're coming on a third anniversary this coming April. Built out our surplus lines capabilities organically. And about a year ago, purchased another shell company. So right now, we have full admitted capabilities, full surplus lines capabilities, staff of 26 individuals. Yeah, Most of that all being accomplished in the depths of a pandemic. So it all started remotely. Oh, well done. Well done. What was it about that moment five, six years ago? Was there something about demand that you were seeing? Made you think you'd have a really good opportunity, a business that was really going to be able to grow? Yeah, it was, it was really driven by the trends that I saw in the program space, the MGA space, both on a relative profitability basis to traditional carriers, rough and ready, about a 200 basis points overall differential, as well as the burgeoning growth in the space. Over the past, at that time, seven years, you look back over 10 years, it's almost a threefold growth in the overall space, but also the share in which obviously fronting carriers, a hybrid fronting carriers have of that entire space. So looking at the trends in the space and some of the carrier behavior and the whole paradigm around the expense continuum, could we do it more efficiently and effectively and provide full service capabilities in a very efficient, effective way to MGAs? Yep. As well as being driven by the thought at the time that reinsurers see and write a significant amount of volatility risk, whether it's CAT or large limit risk, and if a traditional carrier has a program and it's low volatility and it has good data and it's been profitable, again, it has low limits, why would they seed that off if you're a larger company? I mean, that's the company you want to retain. You want to get rid of the volatility and keep your sustainable and in steady earnings. So there's a the supply side of it. And there's also the demand side of it because the reinsurers were really looking to get back into some of that perhaps in the olden days when seedants were smaller, and now they're all, obviously, they merge into a huge global top 10 that are sort of top 10 at pretty much every territory in the world. Do you think that's it? Was it partly that reinsurers are very happy? Yeah, there was certainly a demand pull to it. Yeah, I mean, we thought we could be a source. Again, that's the ancillary reason why we're built as an underwriting company. If we source the right business and align it itself, had that economic alignment, which reinsurers required or many reinsurers required, it would expand the universe of reinsurers with which we could do business with. Because again, they weren't seeing that business relative to the other business amounts of business or share that they were seeing. And actually, that's turned out to be fairly prescient, I guess, if you want to call it that, as far as being one, reinsurers recognizing our value proposition, how we comport, and how we view ourselves as good shepherds and position ourselves as good shepherds of reinsurance capital and are constructed to have the ability to do that. Again, versus a credit pass-through company just taking a 10% net. And is that really also you leveraging your own underwriting experience there as well to know that if I was reinsuring this, this is what I'd be looking for. So you're building something that would chime with those people's demands. 
Yes, in the sense that most of my career as an underwriter, underwriter's underwriter, I was analyzing portfolios of business vis-a-vis treaty reinsurance. And when we look at program business, those are portfolios, which we analyze on a portfolio basis, as well as on an individual risk basis. But they were effectively understanding the perspective of reinsurers, how that business is analyzed, understanding how to analyze portfolios of business, and knowing what it takes to do that and the type of resources and top-tier individuals to join the team that can make that happen and do it in what I would consider the right way. That's certainly been helpful, and I think to a large degree, a differentiator. And what sort of scale have you hit now? What sort of run rate GWP are you putting on the books at the moment? And what sort of headcount to give us a rough idea of how many people are working with you now? Last year, we wrote a bit over $100 million of direct written premium, which is our first full year in operation. Under contract, we have on an estimated premium basis, we have 16 contracts representing over $300 million of business. So we feel very good about that. We currently have 26 employees. By the end of the year, we'll have close to 30 probably 29 or 30. I have five members, in addition to myself, of our leadership team, all who, from my perspective, are top-tier talent, many from disparate backgrounds, disparate from the standpoint of who they worked for previously. So a lot of complementary and supplementary skill sets and institutional experiences. So I feel pretty good about that also. Bill, you were probably quite an early mover, given the first part of this conversation. At that time, you were talking about a handful of competitors probably not doing what you were planning on doing. Now, of course, in that intervening time, this space has kind of exploded, but the market has grown massively at the same time. What is your idea of differentiating the Obsidian offering vis-a-vis some of the other competitors that are out there? Or I I don't know if you see them as competitors, you're all just facilitating and you're all playing the same space. But I suppose, one, actually, do you compete with each other or not really? I think we certainly do in the sense of, you know, we're all in different ways, perhaps, but in general competing for similar or the same businesses. Others have different preferences than ours, whether it's better or worse. People who are looking to start an MGA will come and talk to you and they'll probably talk to some of the other people in the space, I presume. Yeah, well, starting an MGA or if they're with an, a traditional carrier or one of our competitors currently, it's a marketplace from that standpoint. We feel very good as far as our foundational kind of capabilities and differentiation still apply as far as our underwriting capabilities and as importantly, our operational capabilities, blocking and tackling, ability to get things done in a timely, efficient and effective manner, as well as at the same time, leveraging in a positive way, our relationships in the marketplace, whether it's with MGAs, startup MGAs looking for a home, existing MGAs that are with primary carriers or with competitors. So we feel pretty good in our position, but we obviously, we don't take that for granted. It's a very dynamic marketplace. It's changing on a daily basis, it seems, with new entrants and consolidation. In some ways, we look at the recent transverse acquisition. Yeah. And looking out in the three, four years, it'll look much different. But going back to the original question, there's just explosive growth in the MGA space, in the large risk aggregated space, interest in that space. So the wind certainly has been behind our sales as well as behind the sales of our competitors, but it is a competitive market. And we don't see an auction process developing in the market based on a differential basis points upon which decisions are made to select us or anyone else. But certainly there is competition and I think there'll be increasing competition within the context of consolidation and and again, a growing market. I suppose if I was starting an MGA and I was looking for a provider of your ilk, 
it's a big move to pick a provider because it's so fundamental to what you're doing. Presumably, you want to have that really strong relationship and that relationship of trust. And if you already knew someone like you before, that would probably be a very helpful thing. So do you think relationships are still massively important in this kind of space? I certainly think so. And especially the last three years, a lot of this development in the space was in a pandemic environment. Now we're in a post-pandemic environment, for lack of a better term. So having relationships during that point in time, during the pandemic, and knowing people and having had familiarity with them, certainly for us, and I'm sure others in the space and in business, you know, whenever you're in a startup, that certainly has helped. But as the world opens up, leveraging those relationships and utilizing them and forming new ones, it gets into the game a bit, right? Yeah. Your business model, ability to secure reinsurance, ability to provide the service and capabilities that or do the blocking and tackling, so to speak, that needs to get things done. So you start with the relationship, new or existing, then you build upon it, and you get one chance to do it right the first time, right? Yeah. That's kind of what happens. So we're very conscious of that. One of the problems we've had, particularly when you have a market hardening like we've had in the last couple of years, and we had a bit of a shakeout in some of the MGAs, MGUs, where they'd lost their paper, perhaps perfectly profitable MGA had lost paper just because of the carriers behind rearranging and re-strategizing and reprioritizing their books and moving in and out of different classes and territories, etc. Do you offer them something more permanent, much longer tenure, rather than this annual renewal process? Do you think that's one of the big attractions of moving in with a business like yours? It's not a contractual understanding, but it is an understanding. And I think One of the reasons that we've been successful in securing the opportunities we have is once they understand our strategy and our capabilities and our ability to get transactions secured in the reinsurance marketplace where we do business. And when we started taking that net position now, which everyone does, quote unquote, everyone, a lot of the new entrants do, and I think resonates with the clients and and just the way we're built. But as you mentioned, it's a hard market, but as you well know, as well as anyone, the reinsurance market to a large degree is correlated with the reinsurance market. So having those, what I consider top tier or premier capabilities to place reinsurance with a broad panel of reinsurers in a difficult market, leveraging some of the capabilities we have, again, in a positive way, clients do see that as a differentiator. When a new potential opportunity comes across your desk, what are you really looking for in one of those potential new partners? It starts with some fundamentals. You know, one is the individual, the group of individuals, their track record, their positioning in the industry, how they can pour in the industry, reputation to a degree. Do they have a track record? Is what they're trying to do consistent with a business model like ours or other funding carriers as far as volatility? Is it a line of business where we already aren't in, where there's not going to be a lot of channel conflict? So you've added on some very basic characteristics there. And then you get into the kind of, I would say, the underwriting vetting process as far as the quality of data, the quality of the underwriters involved and track record. Do they have a track record with reinsurers? Are they part of a larger company that they don't have access to the data? Having data is good, which does not necessarily preclude us from proceeding. But it sometimes makes procuring reinsurance more difficult. But we've been very successful in getting securing reinsurance, what we've brought to the market. And then, again, there we go through a very rigorous, rigorous in the sense of uh, informational standpoint and a vetting process as far as their ability to manage the business from an operational perspective, discuss at length the TPA they like to use and want to use, 
and can they themselves get stuff done? You know, creating an MGA from scratch, so to speak, that's what they're doing, even with a good team, can be very challenging, especially if you're doing it without accessing one of the platforms which exist, which are more plug and play from a operational administrative standpoint. So I want to make sure those capabilities are there that we hope would match ours. Do you have any kind of set ideas of what sort of classes of business you're interested in partnering with? Or are you kind of agnostic? Sounds like you quite appreciate having the diversity and obviously uh, the avoidance there of channel conflict. Or is there anything you would definitely rule out and say that that's just too specialist for us? We're not really a market for taking a, I would say, material amount of property cat risk onto our balance sheet. Given our capital size, as well as the capital size of other people in the space, many in the space. So we can be part of a solution for property cap business on a pass-through basis or on a very managed basis, but we can't take a material amount of property cap tail risk or on a proportional basis without limitation, just given our size and business model. But other than that, you know, we have preferences. We have not yet entered into the workers' comp space. We're very conservative there, which doesn't say we never will, but we're not actively seeking workers' comp opportunities for a variety of reasons. I wouldn't say agnostic given that we do have preferences, but somewhat agnostic. If it's specialized, it's really driven by the quality of the opportunity, being meaningful in size from an expense standpoint of being at least $10 million in line of sight in a relatively expeditious fashion. And the other way we think about it is opportunity cost. If we do a small transaction or one that be considered relatively less attractive, is the one that's going to be much more significant out there to us and important to us in three to six months that show up on our doorstep or that we could secure because we don't want to be in and out. We want a partner focused on long-term sustainable relationships. It's expensive to onboard and offboard. So we want to make sure that we're maximizing the opportunity set within the space of the line of business to the extent we can. Ideally, you want someone to stick around for a long time and you share the growth together. That's a partnership, right? It's not a marriage, but I guess it's a partnership. It's expensive, as you know, to onboard programs. I mean, the gestation period with reinsurance, on average, maybe it's four to six months, something like that. I mean, I have the number, but it takes time and effort and resources. And offboarding also is expensive. And these things, they just don't go away for us or for our attendant to our MGA's considerations and concerns. And you lose a program or get off a program, you don't replace it the next day with a similar program. So yeah. there's, there's a leg effect there. So yeah, we want to choose the right partner. I mean, again, that's another reason we're built as an underwriting company and a full service company, because it's very expensive and somewhat gnarly if you do pick the wrong partner, whether it's because of opportunity costs, because they really don't deliver a right business or if they're unprofitable. It's a big investment in time and money in many ways. So we're very prudent, but we're also very careful that we're making the right decision and picking the right partner for the class of business or the geography. Obviously, in your business, you're going out and you're meeting new underwriters, entrepreneurial underwriters every day, and you're using your own skill to assess the opportunities that they've got and how profitable their business might be. Do you ever tempted then, if you see that these people might also need additional funding and equity funding or that kind of thing to help incubate them more fully in that way to say, well, why don't we actually buy part of, or at least a minority stake in these people? Because we really want them to be our partner, but they need capital as well to set up their own operations. So one, do you ever get asked to do that? And, and two, would it ever appeal to you? Or do you think that's making life too complicated for yourself? We're occasionally asked 
to date in the foreseeable future. Today, we have not done that. We've considered it. We do like the purity of our model and not making investments in the sense that it makes us more non-aligned, whether it's real or perceived open market player. So if we make an investment in MGAX and another opportunity comes from MGAY, and we have an ownership in X, does that, if they're competing in the marketplace, is that perceived as a conflict, even with the proverbial wall in between, if there was one? And we really want to remain focused. And we'll remain focused on what we think we do best, which is be an underwriting company, secure reinsurance capital, secure alternative reinsurance capital. And really haven't seen the need to add. With that said, we'll consider opportunities that emerge, bespoke basis. We can certainly be helpful in the process as far as connectivity, if that's necessary or desirable from an MGA. But we've not, in the immediate future, plan on making any direct investments. And which is not to say that a business model which incorporates that will not be successful, and some do that, but it's not something that's in our scope right now. You were mentioning earlier about operational efficiency, and obviously it's one of the great advantages of having a new business with a clean slate, no legacy technology, building in an expense advantage and an operational efficiency advantage over incumbents. Of course, you've been at an incumbent as well, so you already know what you're up against. How much of an expense advantage do you think you've managed to build into your business, having been able to build it from a clean slate? Not having legacy systems, legacy people, for lack of a better term legacy office infrastructure, and all the things that most companies have that have been around a while. It's unavoidable. And some companies manage better than others. Has, I think, been a significant advantage, especially from a technology standpoint. Not having to transition legacy technology, legacy people who utilize or develop and utilize the technology in different ways. So that's been a big advantage. And if you look at a traditional carrier, and I've worked at a couple and you're a division writing program business, and that's your space in your world, or any division. It doesn't have to be just program carrier division. You wake up and you're allocated 5%, 6% overhead expenses, or maybe it's four, maybe it's more, but you know, for a large diversified carrier, the margin or the fee structure in this business is five, yeah. six in a running carrier. So just do the math or the arithmetic there, it's a pretty compelling story that our need to be efficient and the need for, I think, long-term for the larger carriers, traditional carriers who are in the space want to be in the program space to crush expenses, look at the business that way. Because the way our cells and others are designed, I think most others, a pretty efficient way to transfer risk and access reinsurance capital. I presume you're using all the latest technology that you can get your hands on. Do you ever see yourself as a sort of a technology-focused business? Dare I say it, even an insure tech, that kind of business? A key to success for all insurance companies, and you can go broader than insurance company, is going to be the efficient and effective application of technology, right? So in some ways, we're all technology companies. And using it effectively and efficiently, again, without having to concerns about legacy systems, legacy technology, in some ways is a gating point to success over the long term. So that was one of the things that was in our original plan, which I had failed to mention. But really, I wouldn't say being necessarily viewed as an insure tech, whatever that means. Different people have different views of it, but certainly being tech-enabled, tech-progressive, and tech-driven, but using that not necessarily as a unique game-changing distribution play, or even from a AI analysis perspective, which is you know the keywords obviously of many of the insure techs. We use AI, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, 
but it's really just to enable us to block and tackle and underwrite and make decisions in a much more effective and efficient way. I'm sure the core of your business model is connecting that underwriting talent to reinsurance capital, which is going to be traditional reinsurance capital. You did mention alternative capital, and it's certainly it's one of the opportunities that you might have to use that connectivity and create that ability to connect in alternative capital to rely on your expertise and, and also the fact that your own retention and your own sort of having skin in the game. I mean, how much of the business is now alternative capital? And do you think it's going to be a larger part of the business going forward? Because to date, it does seem to have been more traditional reinsurance. You know, on a seated basis, it's relatively modest. We do do some. And, you know, true, what I'd say true alternative capital versus single cell vehicles and remuner and things of that nature, which we also utilize, but true all capital that aren't really tied to a, an insurance balance sheet. Yeah. But when I look at fundamentally who we are within the environment, as we talked about earlier, being rapidly changing, evolving, et cetera. Our business is accessing and securing opportunities with program carriers, MGAs, an efficient way, and then identifying and then making sure they're doing business in the way that's consistent with how I think it should be done and going to be profitable, and then accessing as much capital as possible and the right capital to kind of optimize their economics also, vis-a-vis seating commission, less fee, and looking at that within the context of making sure it's structured properly, whether it's traditional or non-traditional or all capital, and making sure it's sustainable. So there's other kind of decision-making criteria in there. But that's really the crux of it, accessing the business, getting the opportunity, analyzing, and then looking at the panel of capital that wants to support it, whether it be traditional or the alt capital, and then consummating the transaction, taking into account some of the other things I mentioned. And in given the trends in the business, the growth of the MGA space, and the growth in the all cap space in these different vehicles that have been emerging over the past few years and what we see in the marketplace and some of whom we do business with, we see that trend continuing. You expect alt capital participation to be growing and to be growing meaningfully as a share? I think so. Do I say that with high degree of certainty? Is it a function of what is now a fairly difficult reinsurance market, though I think somewhat responsible versus other harder markets? Yeah. I do see their share growing. I see their importance growing. Not with a high degree of certainty, but I think they're going to become much more meaningful players. Some of your peers that I've probably had on the show are looking to expand outside the US and or began the process of expanding outside the US. Is that something in your playbook that you might want to do? Our core expertise is in the US and the market is so robust right now. And there's a significant amount of thorough opportunities that we're seeing, but it's something that we've thought about and will continue to think about as we continue to build the company. But we have no immediate plans to be outside the U.S. Now, given how rapidly things are evolving, that could change fairly quickly, potentially opportunistically or otherwise. But at this stage, we're doing what we've originally set out to do and still building the U.S. platform and fairly rapidly. But we'll see. It's a constantly changing environment. Part of our value proposition and part of our success will be adapting to that environment and moving quick and being able to make quick decisions, especially when one are competing in the overall market against companies which are much larger from a capital standpoint, just from a total employee standpoint. So you're quite nimble. You're still quite small and you can move pretty quickly if you need to. We have to, have to be. It's a speedboat around the big cruise ships, right? Given our size, 
they're not nimble and smart and shrewd and sly and they get stuff done in the right way. That's it's not a good space to be. You're an entrepreneur. You've built this business yourself. When I talk to someone who's a business founder and leader, I always ask them this question. What sort of vision do you have for the business? There are different types of entrepreneurs. Some are the sort of people who want to build a business that is a legacy that they can hand on to their grandchildren that kind of metaphorically has their name above the door and has their DNA sort of in it and their own vision in it to create something new. And others are more, I just wanted to prove I could do it. And at some point I've proved the concept, I've made it work, and then I'll move on to something else. What sort of entrepreneur are you? Do you have an exit plan for the business, for example? Well, you know, as 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 you know, we're private equity owned, and so that's not forever. They're all private yeah. equity firms. They buy, they sell, or they roll. But I would say, you know, when I started, it was really to seeing the opportunity and building something. So ultimately, there'll be a exit from GenStar. Our capital provider has been a great partner, and that could be to another carrier. It could be public offering. It could be a rollover to another private equity firm over the next X number of years. But when I think about it, it's really building something that has value, that the value is recognized, the value is sustainable. Going back to your kind of first question, it's not a type of company that I'll turn over to my children who are not in the <laughs> business or they're doing it on their own, but ultimately some of the fruits of my labor will be turned over to them. <laughs> Less of probably a pretty significant tax bite, but and that's all a good thing. But my view when I was asked that by other private equity firms was as far as exit and similar questions was always, you know, my, my goal is to build a great company in the space, in a very robust market, differentiate ourselves and compete to be the best yep. with valuation, exit, in some ways, taking care of itself if you build a great company. Yep. Obviously, there's other ancillary considerations, but that was my goal and that was in the business plan. So if we execute our business plan in this market, and the market's even more robust than we thought it would be three or four years ago, then we'll be doing just fine. And, and if we do just fine in this market, that's the legacy, right? Well, now that's the segment that you're in is really on everyone's radar. And we mentioned the transverse deal. Do you think there's going to be more consolidation, more interest in acquisition? That was an acquisition from a carrier. Do you think you're going to see more of that coming along the track? I think over time, in most businesses, it's a very fertile time and, and new entrances are attracted. And then you see consolidation, you know, whether it's the auto industry in the 20s, where they had dozens, if not hundreds of auto manufacturers. I don't know if that's the right analogy, but yeah, there'll be consolidation. If it continues to be profitable, there'll be new entrants through acquisition, through consolidation. So I do see over time, consolidation, and maybe one or two companies currently in the space consolidate others. So I do think it'll be a very fluid, organic process and happen, maybe starting with transverse, a fairly fluid process. Yeah. So we'll end up with a sort of General Motors, Ford and Chrysler of your space. It's kind of interesting. I would say there'll, there'll be larger players. Yeah. I mean, companies like, you know, hopefully ours and others in this space will get larger and be interested to look out if one had a looking glass, who were the top in the class five years from now or three years from now, it's going to be very interesting. But at the same time, this is a very entrepreneurial industry, insurance and reinsurance, and certainly the MGA space, distribution space is changing. So it'll be interesting to see how even companies are defined, right? Can you be able to define companies as front-end carriers only doing program business? 
I don't know. It'll be very interesting. Well, it certainly will, Bill. I just want to thank you for coming on the show. I've come to the end of all my questions. Looks like you're in the middle of a very, very exciting journey, and it's going pretty fast. So hopefully we'll get you to check in and come back on the show at some point in the future to give us an update. But until then, good luck with the journey. And thank you so much for spending the time to tell us all about Obsidian. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure. And great seeing you again. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>